Austin, she just had a birthday, and she's 39 now. And uh, stand up, Sue. Go ahead. Come on, Sue. Stand up. Stand up. Okay. You know, when your microphone goes off, all the dramatic effect into the message is gone anyway. So let's just, everybody just relax. I hope you have picked up a worship guide this morning. There's a, a, a guide that will guide you through our message. But So today, um, we're talking about finishing strong, which may sound like the end of the year message, but it's really not. If you remember, Chad kind of kicked this off last week, and I'm going to kind of finish this idea with us a little bit this morning about finishing strong. And we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 19, and we'll be referring to through that as we go through the message this morning, so I would encourage you to keep that open so you can kind of follow along. In Steve Farrar's book entitled Finishing Strong, which I read several years ago, he begins with the year 1995 as his opening example. And it was a great year for rookie evangelists. Now, for some of you, 1945 sounds a little bit like uh, 300 years ago, but it really wasn't, for some of us, it wasn't that long ago. But 1995, a guy named Billy Graham burst onto the scene. And he preached with an organization called Youth for Christ. And they had crusades around the country. And he was preaching to 30,000 at night. And that was the beginning of, of a powerful ministry. But Chuck Templeton and Bron Clifford were accomplishing even more. Chuck Templeton in 1946 was named by the National Association of Evangelicals as Best Used of God. He was going to be the next Babe Ruth of evangelism. But five years later, he left the ministry. He became a radio and television commentator and a newspaper columnist. And by 1950, just five years, he no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Christ. Bron Clifford in 1945 was believed by many to be the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. He preached to thousands in Miami, Florida. They lined up outside the auditorium 12, 10 and 12 deep to get in. And later that year, he was preaching at Baylor, and the president at Baylor had them turn off the bells for classes while he kept the students in chapel kind of spellbound on the edge of their seats for two hours and 15 minutes preaching about Christ. By 1954, he had lost his family, his ministry, his health, and later his life. Alcohol and financial issues had done him in. He left his wife and their two Down syndrome children, and at 35, he died in a motel, a rundown motel on the edge of town in Amarillo, Texas. Local pastors took up a collection so that they could purchase a casket and so the body could be shipped back east to be buried. And it was buried in a cemetery for the poor. 1945, three men with extraordinary gifts, preaching to thousands across the nation. And within 10 years, only one of those, Billy Graham, was still on track. And you know, this is a sad commentary 
It's sad because it seems to be such a misuse of potential in service to God. And yet, it's a story that we have seen repeated time and time and time again. Now, in the history of our planet, there's probably no greater movement of a group of people that started out with such great expectations and possibilities than as the Israelites moved out of Egypt and started the Exodus. You remember the story. All the Israelites were in their homes. The death angel strikes and, at the, and the firstborn in all of Egypt, including the cattle, the firstborn of all Egypt, the firstborn of all the cattle even, were all dead. After 430 years of bondage, it was over. Moses call, or Pharaoh calls Moses in. He says, take these people out of my country. Take them out of Egypt. Get them out of here. And on your way out, you can take whatever you want to. And so they did. So the sun comes up, and 600,000 men, plus women and children, an estimated 1,500,000, start to leave. So they take their livestock, their belongings, and the things they had taken from the Egyptians, and they start moving out. They're guided by a pillar of cloud by day, and it becomes a pillar of fire at night. So you can just imagine what that would look, how dramatic that would have been out in the desert. Here's this raging fire at night. The pillar shielded them a little late, uh, pretty soon in their trek, shielded them from Pharaoh and his chariots as they were coming to attack. Because, you know, Pharaoh thought it was a great idea for them to leave, and then he changed his mind. And he sends them out, and this pillar of fire protects them. And so here they are. They get to the Red Sea, and there's nowhere to go. They don't know, you know, and they're starting to really sweat. And Moses stretches out his hand. The winds begin to blow. The waters divide. And the people of Israel move forward on dry land. And then God caused Pharaoh's chariots to swerve around and get sidetracked until they were across. And so here come the chariots. Here comes Pharaoh's army. The waters come in, and they all drowned. Moses stretched out his hand, the waters came in, it was all over. And Psalms and many scripture passages throughout the Bible allude back to the fact that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we put our trust in the name of the Lord. God had protected them, and they celebrated. All the women that were... Uh, around, gathered with tambourines, and they started dancing, and they followed Miriam, Moses' sister, and they're celebrating, and in Exodus 15, 21, we have the song of Moses, which says, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It was a fabulous beginning, full of hopes and dreams. It began so well. It had such a promising future. 1.5 million start out, and 40 years later, 40 years later, only two that had been older than 20 of that group that left were still alive. They died, disappointed in the desert. It's a powerful lesson of what 
of how possible it is to start out so well and to end so poorly. So here today in this passage that I asked you to open to in the book of Hebrews, the, the, uh, the writer is addressing their past, and it's to keep his, his group who are, all, who are undergoing hardship as well, because this, was, this had begun in the New Testament, uh, a, a place where a lot of persecution had started, and he was trying to encourage them not to make the mistakes their ancestors had made. This writer wants them, and this writer wants us today. To finish strong. So he quotes, actually, from Psalm 95, beginning in verse 7. This was a passage that came to be the call to worship on the Sabbath in every synagogue. And it was, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he further connects that passage with the one he has in Hebrews. So as the Holy Spirit says... Let's take just just want to remind you. It doesn't say so as the Holy Spirit said, or as the Holy Spirit acted, or something else went on before. It says so as the Holy Spirit says. That means now, because anytime we open God's Word, it becomes now because it, because it's living. The Bible is not a history book, is it? The Bible is action going on right now. Sometimes we read it like a history book. Sometimes we think it's about somebody's past glories or mistakes, but it's always, wherever you open the Bible, it's always got something to say to us now. There's a message from God to his church as well as to the church there in Hebrews and for us today. The present voice of God in, yes, an ancient message is that we must listen. We must listen. Now, you know, we're always getting warning signs, aren't we? You get, a, you get a notification on your phone that your battery is low, your iPad or your whatever kind of pad you have is low, your computer needs to be replugged in, your laptop needs to be plugged in again, and we're always getting these, these warnings. We see signs like, watch out for falling rocks, no outlet, dead end, slow, children at play. And some of you have said before, slow children at play. But slow children at play. We get beeps and buzzers and bells and horns. And yet we still miss the alarms that go off in life that are there to protect us. So, but firmly planted in our passage today are God's warnings that we should pay attention and beware. And what is that beware? Beware of a hard heart. Beware of a hard heart. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 9, we read, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Do not harden your hearts. Two key words that help us understand what it means to harden our hearts. One is rebellion, and the other is testing. And at a time I'll refer to in just a moment, the two words were mirabah, which means rebellion, and massa, which means testing. So it points back to Psalm 95, 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at mirabah, remember it means rebellion, as on the day at massa, which means testing in the wilderness. So don't harden your hearts. 
This points us back to the events of ex- in Exodus 17, where early in the journey, Israel is camped near Mount Sinai, and they run out of water, and they start to argue, and Moses gets it from all sides. You know, they're, they're having a hard, he's having a hard time that day. Wasn't a good day to be a leader. But in verse 2, he said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? So God tells Moses to strike the rock, and water comes out of the rock. God always comes through, even when we are ready to give up. And the account ends like this. And he called the name of the place Massa. Remember, that means testing. And Mirabah, which means quarreling or rebellion, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, that word Mirabah shows up again 40 years later at a place called Kadesh Barnea. They're back. They're back. When Israel is out of the water, is out of water, and there's a rebellion brewing, and Moses, out of his frustration... He strikes the rock twice. And God had said, just speak to the rock this time. Before he said strike. Here he says, speak. And Moses didn't obey. And he was held accountable for that. But this just shows us, whether we're looking at Exodus 17 and then again at Numbers 20, that the hardening took place in the wilderness and was rooted in unbelief. Unfortunately, as they, as they left Egypt on the Exodus, they left with an inadequate faith. They weren't really ready. You know, they'd had 430 years of slavery. They had this powerful leader named Moses. They saw multiple plagues on Pharaoh. They saw miracles of pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. That, that little synopsis right there ought to really last you for your whole life. Uh, and for the moment, they were ready to follow God anywhere. But then the new wore off, and they're saying, is the Lord among us or not? Everything was cool until the first real trial came, and then unbelief sets in, and then doubt arises, and they're griping about the leadership, and this belief becomes this hardened contempt that moves from contempt into disobedience. So when they get to to Kadesh Barnea the first time, You remember they sent out these 12 guys because they've gotten to the promised land. And they send send these 12 guys out to check out the promised land. Now, this is early in their adventure together, right? Do you remember the names of those 12? I bet you could list all 12 of them real fast, couldn't you? Well, let's look at them. Shemua, Shaphet, Eigel, Palti. Gadiel, Manasseh, Amiel, Sethur, Nabi, Gruel, Caleb, and Joshua. Aren't you glad we got to those last two? Now remember, remember, these are the best of the best. They represented, there were one from each tribe, and they represented the best guy at the time. And when they came back, they agreed, yes, this land has lots of grapes and pomegranates and figs, and it was, quote, flowing with milk and honey. That was kind of a metaphor for how great everything was. And it was just as they had promised. It was a land of plenty. And remember, God had given them this land. But when these guys came back, 10 of them said, it's too big. 
The task is too great. Man, those people are too tall to be challenged. Okay, think about this. Just remember, not too long before this, they had escaped from the richest kingdom with the most powerful army on the planet, and they were afraid of tall Canaanites. Tall people scared them. They had a great start, but 10 of them didn't finish. They were afraid. And what was the result? Well, you know, we don't have time to list all the results of that. But I will list one that affects you and me. I don't have any people on my street that I know of that have named their kids Shamua or Palti. But I know people named Joshua and Caleb. I don't think that's an accident. That, all, that these other people blended into obscurity, faded away. But two stand out as men that finished. Now, at the time, they moaned and they cried. This is terrible. We're scared. And some of them wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb because Joshua and Caleb dared to believe that God would give them the land. And in Numbers 14.10, God answered. And here's what had happened. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all of the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Imagine how disgusted God gets with us as a people. I know he gets disgusted with me as an individual, but imagine Multiply that by millions and billions and think how upset that we make God all the time. You see, they didn't believe. After all he had done to bring them to this moment, they did not believe. This all amounts to something we understand as contempt for God. They were contemptuous of God. So hardness sets in in unbelief and it produces contempt for God. And from that, we see negativism. We see grumbling, we see quarreling, we see disobedience. Whoop, sounds like a Baptist church. We see negativism, we see grumbling, we see quarreling, and we see disobedience. Now, here's a question. When you hold the mirror of God's word up to your life, up to your heart, to take a reading, to take a spiritual pulse reading of your life, what does your behavior indicate? What does my behavior indicate? Do we find a hard, unbelieving heart? Or do we see the tenderness of a faithful heart? It's a question for you to consider this morning. But according to Psalm 95, the result of Israel's hardness, and this hardness of heart, is judgment. Judgment. God denied entrance into the promised land. This was God's plan for them. He had this, here it is. And they said no. So in turn, he said no. Now you'll remember at the beginning of time, God created a garden for mankind to live in. A perfect place. And we messed it up. We made poor choices. We said, Bill, I didn't make the poor. Someone who represented us made poor choices. And allowed sin in to a perfect place. And so we've spent the rest, of etern- the rest of time trying to reconnect 
And God has spent all of these centuries trying to help us reconnect back to him. So we had a garden to start with, and now they're about to get what could have been another garden. Except this time, they would have struggled, yes. Things would not have always gone their way, of course. Some people would have died early. There would have been arguments. It wouldn't have been a perfect place, but it was the place God offered them. And just like he had to take us out of the Garden of Eden, he decided, you're going to miss this one too, folks. Psalm 95, 10, and 11, God says, For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my way. So I declare an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Now, we know that God does forgive his people down the road. He forgives them for a lack of faith. But the judgment remained. And so in Numbers 14, 20 through 23, and you can see it right here, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. So if you were over 20 years of age when you came out of Egypt, you weren't going to get to see the promised land unless your name was, names were Joshua and Caleb. So every one of them, every one of them died before they could have the promised land. Imagine a million graves during those 40 years as people died and as new life came. So there was a price to pay. Interesting side note here, it would have taken less than two weeks to get from where they came from to the promised land. Less than two weeks travel to get to the promised land. And they messed it up and they took a 40-year detour. The writer of Hebrews wants us to see that it's possible to have a remarkable spiritual journey and still lose our way. When trouble comes. It's the message from Psalm 95 to the persecuted church in Hebrews. But you know, it's also the message to those of us that assemble here at 270 Country Club Road this morning in Fairview, Fairview, Texas. I've served in ministry for a little over 45 years. And unfortunately, I've seen too many who started out to serve in great ways only to lose their focus, lose their direction, and wind up not serving God because of the loss of focus, they lost their purpose. And they just kind of wandered in and out for the rest of their lives. I've seen a lot of that, unfortunately. Because trouble comes and then unbelief sets in. Trouble comes and unbelief sets in. It could be this morning that for some of you, trouble came and unbelief set in. You, or you know someone in your family. When trouble came, unbelief set in. Or maybe it was a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or someone you sit beside at school. When things didn't go right, all of a sudden they didn't believe. So what can we do about that? In these next few, past, few uh, verses, 
there's an explanation for that. There's a, a way to find that. First of all, protect your heart. Protect your heart. Writer of Hebrews says in verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, he's going to say, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it is no exaggeration to say that in today's culture, we're going to live in a constant challenge to remain faithful to God's word and what it teaches us. You and I are going to be challenged. So, first of all, protect your heart. Protect your heart. Stay faithful to what the Bible says. Number two, help each other. Help each other. So we have this warning in verse 13. And it's the remedy for a hard heart. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by by sin's deceitfulness. See how different it could have been and would have been if Israel had, had encouraged each other instead of griped and complained to each other. Constantly grumbling. Isolation from, the, from encouragement is tough on anybody. And so they just grumbled and griped to each other. That's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need each other here. And in the church around us. It's because you and I need encouragement. And we won't get that in isolation. When we hang out, around, when we hang out by ourselves, we can get convinced by the wisdom of the world and go off in the wrong direction quickly. You know, unbelievers can have a powerful impact on our thinking and our decision making. You know, if tomorrow morning you turn on your computer and you go to Yahoo or Google and you start looking at those news items, you're going to get discouraged in a hurry. Because the world shoots us a lot of stuff that is really going to bring us down. It's important that we go to God. And then we seek his encouragement. That's one of the reasons we promote something called growth groups around here. Because when things don't go well, besides your family, the next tier of care and relationship is a growth group. Or for students, a youth group. And that's how we encourage and bring each other up. Because we build relationships. And the proof of our relationship with Christ is as we see in verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. The proof of our relationship is that we finish. The proof that your salvation and your commitment to God really matters is that you finish rather than you get lost. We are not meant to be spectators. We're not meant to just watch Christian stuff go on. We are to be participants in the arena of the Christian life. When we hit trials and tests, if we hang tight, we won't lose our focus, will we? We'll stay pointed at the goal. We'll stay pointed at the end zone, that being the master. The Israelites lost their grip on God's promises. They abandon his commands, and we see the results. 
40 years of wandering. Now, we need to say to ourselves, as well as when we see Southern see people drifting away, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Because sin hardens us. Sin makes repentance and faith more difficult. And we become disconnected. And we fall away. The danger of having a hard heart is not that you might stumble. The danger of a hard heart is is that it might lead to a final denial of God and rejection of his grace that comes only through Jesus Christ. So the danger of a hard heart is not that you're going to have a task that's tough. You're going to have a task that's tough no, no matter what. The danger is we're going to disconnect from God. The danger of hard heart is unbelief. Because hard hearts do not recognize or accept our need for a Savior. Those three men we started with all had amazing potential and would seem to have believed what they were saying. But two of them got dramatically out of focus with the way God was trying to lead them. Because even as a Christian, even if he's your Savior, you can make poor choices that will result in consequences. The Christian life is not an insulation or a barrier that keeps us from making mistakes. But it's the way that we have to handle life. So protect your heart. Help each other. And third, persevere. 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 This, next, this last section of this passage that we've looked at this morning has a series of questions. Six questions, in fact. And each one has a, first, has, a, has a question that it asks, and then the second question is the response or the answer. It's the remedy. So question number one in verse 16 is, who were they who heard and rebelled? The answering question is, were they not those Moses led out of Egypt? And the point here is that everyone who died in the desert had begun an amazing exodus with great expectations. Now, this second set, verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Can you imagine knowing God was angry with you for 40 years? Wow. I wouldn't be sitting in a pew. I'd be like under the pew this morning. If I thought God had been mad at me, upset with me, angry with me for 40 years. And the answering question is, was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert? So the result was, they died in the desert. The people, the point is, the people who angered God for 40 years were those who did not believe he could provide for them, though they had left Egypt with great hope. And this is the warning that high hopes is not enough. There must be belief. You've got to have belief and you've got to act on it. It's not enough to have high hopes. And the third set, verse 18, And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? Answering question, if not to those who disobeyed. There, here, unbelief leads to action. Because you're going to act on your unbelief. And you're going to separate from God. So three sets of questions just show us a descent into hardness of heart, from hope to disbelief to disobedience. From hope to disbelief to disobedience. And in verse 19, the last verse in our passage today, 
the conclusion. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So what does that say to you and me? What does that say this morning? It says we must persevere. Persevere in faith. Because without faith, we will not enter the promised land. Those without faith do not enter God's rest. The faithful hold firmly until the end. Are you holding firmly that you're going to have him all the way into the end? Lack of trust in God always prevents us from receiving his best. Why would he give us all that he can give us? Why would we receive his best if we don't really trust him, if we don't believe him, if we are hard in our hearts this morning? But the faithful finish strong. The faithful finish strong. Now, Bill, what does that even mean? You, you, you said that before several times today. The faithful finish strong. Well, first of all, it means we have a strong relationship with Christ today and tomorrow and into the future until I take my final breath. Until you take your final breath. It also means you're a person who values the Bible and allows Scripture to direct your decisions. How are you making your decisions? Does God's Word have anything to do with how you make decisions? Or do you just do something that feels good and then, God, I wish you'd bless this now that I've thought it was a great idea? Because that's kind of how we do, isn't it? I'm going to make this big investment, or I'm going to purchase this, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. And then we think when we sign the papers, then we go back and say, hey, God, this is a great idea, isn't it? A third thing is it means you're a person who's fought some battles for the kingdom and has the scars to prove it. If you got into this life thinking there would be no battles or there would be no difficulties, somebody told you a really sweet story, but it wasn't the truth. You and I are going to have to endure life because we live in a sinful world. We can't avoid it. But look how much better our life is. When we believe the promises we have of God from his word to the things he allows to happen in our lives. Do you really want to trade that when there's such great promise for how our lives can be? And, fi- and finally, it means that you are leaving your children and your grandchildren the priceless heritage of a godly life. Rather than a life that says, well, you know, hey, it's all about me. Those are the things we do to finish strong. Those are the things we do to finish strong. Now, those of you that have lived a while know how important it is, if you're a person of faith, to lay down principles and a lifestyle and try to be that example. Because you want better for your kids and you want better for your grandkids. You know, Shasta and I have these discussions about what our grandkids are going to have to face and all the challenges of a culture that's continually changing the rules about what's right and what's wrong. Because we've come to a place where everything's up for grabs. The only absolute truths are the ones we understand God's Word has to say to us. Because the world has re- is redefining everything for us. So yeah, I'm a little nervous about the world my grandchildren are going to inherit. But I also know 
that if we do our jobs, if my kids do their jobs to lay the path, to lay the foundation, to help them find the foundation stones for their living, that they're going to have insight and they're going to make good choices. I believe that. Just like Joshua and Caleb were sure that this promised land was theirs, they were there when they walked in. And they finished strong. So what do you want for your life? How do you want to come to the end of your life? Now, if you're, a, if you're an elementary person this morning or a student, that sounds like thousands of years away, that someday you're going to come towards the end of your life. You think, man, there's no, there's, that's, that's so far away I can't even think about it. But for all of us that have been on this journey, when you look back, how long ago was it? Six months? You know? It happened so quickly, didn't it? And you have to, after you've lived this a little while, you understand how quickly life goes. So the place and the time to make your decisions about who you're going to be is today. Not tomorrow, not in a few years from now, but now. Now that's the case if you're young if you're a student, if you're an adult at whatever place you find yourself, including those of us here this morning that might be a little older, we still have to re-up. We still have to re-up. I made a commitment. I became a Christian at 10 years old. It didn't all happen right after I became a Christian. I didn't get a whole load. I didn't understand everything at 10 years old. And then when God spoke to me and I said, you know, Lord, as a high school student, I just want to be whatever you want me to be. And I want to do and be available. And I just give myself to you. And I didn't know what the heck that even meant as a high school student. But he has honored that through the years by reminding me and staying with me and carrying me through the challenges of life. You may this morning be discouraged because this thing hasn't gone like you thought it would. You didn't graduate from the college you intended to, if you graduated. Or maybe you didn't get the job you were expecting. Or even if you got it, it wasn't what you thought it would be. And, by the way, it never pays enough money, right? Doesn't matter what it is, it never pays enough money. Maybe your spouse, it just didn't turn out like you thought. And y'all struggle. Maybe your kids aren't developing like you had hoped. Maybe your grandkids aren't what you thought they would be. You know, life just throws us curves, doesn't it? In 2010... I was serving the Baptist Convention in Texas. I had, I had an office downtown in Dallas, and we tried to do good work for churches in, in the state of Texas. And I was also serving as the interim minister of music at First Baptist Church of Paris. 
I was there a little over three years. But in, in the middle of that, uh, on a September afternoon, September the 5th, we were driving back because we, it was Labor Day weekend, so we weren't going to have evening services. And we were driving down 121 towards home. And we got to an intersection called Desert. Now, I would like to describe to you what happened next. But the truth is, I don't remember it. Because in the impact from the car that hit us, that memory's been wiped clean. I remember being about 200 yards out of the intersection, and the light was green. (laughs) Maybe 100 yards. The light was green, and we were headed up the hill. And the next thing I knew, I was bent over, and my leg hurt really bad. And our car was destroyed. And what had happened is we had been, I had been hit from the left side just behind the passenger, just behind the driver. Our car was turned around and driven into a power pole that broke and our car was destroyed. They first thought I was the more damaged, but as it turned out, Shasta was the more damaged. And when I, after they took me to the hospital, a couple days later, before I even realized what had happened, she had had four operations. I had a messed up knee. And you're wondering, is this God's plan? For our family. We did several months of therapy. She's got bolts and nuts in this hand. I've got a lot of titanium right here. I haven't set off any alarms. I don't know why. But uh, looks like an erector set in there. You know, it's, it's, Would God let this happen to a person who's been faithful? Oh, my goodness. Is that possible? So several months of therapy... Shasta with tubes, nine months with a colostomy bag. Yeah, it was an interesting trip. Now, you know what I could have done? I could have said, God, this is going to impact us financially. This is going to kill us. We may lose our house. Um, How could you let this happen? How do you let people of faith, how, how does stuff like that happen to us people of faith? That's not fair, is it? I could have done all that. I could have shaken my fist at God. But in all of that, what I had was comfort from the Holy Spirit. Right now, where I was, moment by moment through that whole process. Now, when you get out of tough times, are there things left over? Yeah. There's some physical issues that we both deal with. And, you know, it took us a while to get past the whole bill stuff. It was was a challenging time. But you know what I never did? I never did blame God. No, that's me. No, that's not me patting myself on the back. I didn't have a hard heart, and I was still available. And God used that in ways I don't have time to even describe this morning about all the ways God used that. So what I'm, I'm not saying, look at me. I'm saying, even in the midst of whatever challenge you have this morning, Whatever's not working right with your body or your family or your job or the world around you, God still has a plan and a purpose for you. 
And this morning, in a moment, we're going to sing, I Surrender All. And this invitation for you should be a time of commitment where you say once and again, God, I'm re-upping this morning. I'm going to re-up. I'm going to sign up again. I have been so depressed. I have been so down. Life has not treated me like I wanted. It was supposed to be so different. Because the God of the universe is saying to you right now, you know, it may not have been exactly like you planned, but I was there with you the whole time. I was with you the whole time. So this morning, when we stand in just a moment, I hope what you'll be seeing when you sing, I Surrender All, it will really be that, Father, I'm starting again today because I really do surrender it all to you today, now. Even though it hadn't been what I thought it should be. Because here's the great thing. Whatever you've, whatever you've been a part of, God's going to use that. Whatever challenge you've had, God's going to use that because it's all for his glory. And as I said earlier, we, it's not all about me. I don't want to end my life because all I could think about was me. It's about him. It is about him. If you believe that this morning, would you say that with me? It is about him. One more time. It is about him. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, we have been reminded this morning through this passage that you are indeed in charge. You are indeed powerful. We don't know why you're so patient with us, Father. We don't know why you love us the way you do. We don't know why that uh, you're allowing us to continue But what we do know is that you have a plan and a purpose, but we have to find it. And this morning, we have to reach out and just believe you. So this morning, I'm praying that you will moisten, soften, mellow, hard hearts. Because we know in a room, uh, even of believers, there are many of us who have hard places because we just gave up or because we didn't understand or it just didn't work out like we thought it should so this morning I'm praying Father that you'll melt some hearts and that as we sing and as you offer and as your Holy Spirit moves that our lives will indeed be touched because we want and need to finish strong the world throws stuff at us makes it hard father I pray you'll put a healing comforting hand on each one in this room this morning and that we'll all be reminded how much you love us and how you want our hearts to be soft and how you want us to persevere and how you want us to rely and love, on, love each other. So take this time. Use it however you can and want to as we seek to surrender all to you this morning. Thank you, Father, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you want to come and pray, if you want to pray with me, if you want to find out more about what I've been talking about, perhaps you need to go to someone. Maybe there's something that you're holding on to that's keeping you from being really connected to God the way you want to be. I don't know what your issue is this morning, but I want to encourage you to do business with God. Not to do business just because we're here, but because you know through the power of the Holy Spirit that this passage has spoken in some way to you this morning. And I would encourage you to do something about it. And let's make it real in this place. I surrender all.